0: In this promise of the gospel, let's open the Word of God without fear that God might uh, instruct and teach us. Our scripture reading this this morning comes from second Kings chapter 21. Second Kings 21 We'll read that chapter. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them and he built altars in the house of the lord of which the lord had said in jerusalem will i put my name and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the lord and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers he did much evil in the sight of the lord provoking him to anger And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he said in in the house of the Lord of which which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, "'Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel,' Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage, and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Joshba. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father, had, in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house." But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. As we reflect on what we've just read, let's sing together from Psalm 59, stanzas 1, 2, 7, and 8. It's good for us to be challenged sometimes, to be reminded there's still a few melodies we don't know all that well. A few psalms, indeed. Uh, It's speaking of the, the content, the letters, the words that we also don't know that well uh, the, the, the Psalter is uh, a book for all times, including the darkest hours, uh, which we often forget. The text that we'll be paying attention to this morning is Second Kings 21, the chapter that we've just read. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, speaking of darkest hours... This text is the, the darkest hour in the entire book of first and Second Kings, the, the, the lowest spiritual point that the story of Israel and Judah has ever reached. Uh, it really is the, the worst chapter of the book. Now that's not because we haven't seen some bad chapters, uh, especially when we looked at the life of Ahab. In the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, those were some, some bad chapters. Uh, the final moments, too, if you recall, of the northern kingdom as it plunged into chaos and warfare in its last moments. Uh, that, too, was a dark chapter. Uh, but here's the difference. This is Judah. That was Israel. This is Judah. This is the line of David. As bad as any of those kings were, they weren't from the line of David. This is the last hope. For the church of that day, that the line of David now plunges into this kind of evil. Uh, To get an idea of just how dark this season was. Uh, of of 55 years think about it from the perspective of the church there was a church of that day uh, the faithful those who believed in the promises of god who held on during all those years think of how hard these years would have been for them uh, when when at least when ahab and the other kings of the north uh, descended into this kind of decay the the faithful who were left could say well that's the that's the northern ten tribes there's still the line of david god's still has his promises he made to David the temple's still there in Judah uh, at least there's that uh, and for the church of that day that was the only earthly comfort that they had uh, that the line of David was still there and God was at least honoring his promises to keep the line of David from falling the way the northern ten tribes did uh, now, now, there have also been some dark moments in Judah. Uh, this certainly isn't the first time, but it is the worst moment. Manasseh is described as the worst of the kings of, uh, of the line of David, uh, worse than any who were before or any who came after him. Uh, and that evil is multiplied by the fact that he reigned longer than almost any other king, uh, 55 years, the better part of a lifetime for most people. Uh, So it's not only the the depth of evil to which Manasseh fell uh, and led the people of Judah, but also the length of time by by which that evil was allowed to go on unchecked. Now we can only imagine how the moral and the spiritual degradation in Judah uh, during those years would have just broken the spirit of many believers who had put their hope in the line of David. The life of Manasseh himself also forces us to to think about uh, the, some serious questions, like the consequences of of failing to pass on our faith from one generation to the next it 's quite a striking thing that that this is the son of Hezekiah, uh, one of the most righteous kings we 've ever seen. It boggles the mind to think how someone like Manasseh could ever be the son of someone like Hezekiah. Where was the the father and son instruction and and, and discipleship in the ways of the Lord? Well, evidently, it wasn't there, or at least it didn't take hold. Hezekiah may have been a righteous king, but the good that he accomplished would largely be undone because he failed to be a father. There's also the role of mothers. Uh, to to consider here. The book of Kings makes a point, in in fact, of highlighting the role of mothers, with nearly every king of Judah were given the name of the mother. Uh, And that's not just an inconsequential detail for the sake of the records. Uh, Particularly if the the father was absent, as was often the case, the father running around, uh, running the affairs of of the country, the mother's role was crucial in determining who the young boy would be and what king he he would grow up to be. Uh, so it is today, as much as we're, we're thankful for the role of many active and busy fathers, uh, we recognize that it's the role of mothers that will make the biggest difference in the life of any child. Uh, and so every time we read of these kings and we read the names of their mothers, it's a sober reminder to us that the most influential task in the world is the task of A mother. And one more thing about the the life of Manasseh, uh, and this is something that we need to think carefully about. If you read the account of Manasseh's life in Chronicles, that's 2 Chronicles 33, uh, there is a chapter in his life that we're not told about here in, in the book of Kings. At the very end of Manasseh's life, he was taken off captive to Assyria in response to something. We don't know what he did to offend the king of Assyria. But he was taken off captive, and there in the prisons of Assyria, Manasseh came to repentance he repented before the Lord. It says in, in Chronicles, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he even at the very end of his life returned to Jerusalem and removed the idols that he had set up. In Kings, we're not even told about that last chapter in Manasseh's life. Uh, the book of Kings uh, takes, takes more of a perspective oriented not so much to the king himself but to the nation, uh, the nation of Judah. Uh, and so as the author of Kings looks at the 55 years of Manasseh's reign, uh, all they have to say about him is he did evil in the sight of the Lord in every imaginable way, period, end of story. As far as the nation's concerned, that's the impact that Manasseh had. Uh, Verses 1 to 9 describe at least seven ways in in which Manasseh led Judah to do evil. That's the phrase the book uses. Led Judah to do evil in the sight of the Lord, not even counting the rivers of innocent blood that he shed in Jerusalem, mentioned in verse 16. Uh, And so in, in this respect, as far as the nation is concerned... That end-of-life repentance of Manasseh's makes no difference. It's irrelevant to the nation, to the legacy that Manasseh left. He was who he was. He did what he did. Uh, He may have been forgiven personally by God, and his soul may have been saved by that last-minute repentance, but the legacy was written. Uh, the impact of his life was written. The consequences of his sins and the damage that they did were not undone by whatever repentance he may have shown at the end. And that ought to be a sober lesson for all of us. And again, especially in the realms in which we're given responsibility as kings, in his case, or as fathers, or mothers, or pastors, or elders, or whatever other roles of influence were given uh, one commentator puts it this way A healthy spiritual legacy seldom flows from a late and sudden conversion, but rather from the practice of lifelong and attractive godliness. That's the principle that's laid down here. As much as that repentance may have saved his soul, it didn't save his legacy. That was written. Uh, Manasseh's son Ammon also learned the ways of his father. He grew up under a wicked father and was a wicked king for the two years that he lasted as king before the people themselves assassinated him. So in the ordinary course of life, we reap what we sow. Anything else is the grace of God. Now, I'm not saying by that that it's, it's not worth repenting. If there's, not, if there's time for repentance, as long as there is time for repentance, it's always worth repenting. As long as you're still on this earth, there is time to repent, and there's nothing more urgent than repentance, uh, especially for your own soul. Uh, And by God's grace, some of the damage that we do in our lives is mitigated oftentimes uh, by by repentance. But in general, end-of-life repentances don't take away the consequences of a life of godlessness and a life of destruction. Uh, And so once again, as uh, we we look at the lessons that the book of Kings teaches us, we're reminded uh, each of us to consider the legacy, consider the legacy that we will leave behind. Uh, our lives are our stories that are written in the present. Uh, that remain and are sealed in the past. Uh, we, we live every moment as it were carving out our legacy in wet cement. Uh, that will harden behind us. Uh, and so some of us will only live for the moment, pursuing only what is easiest or what feels best, and and will leave behind a trail of destruction that can't just be unwritten. Now, God, of course, can still work evil for good, and God does. That's, that's also the story of Scripture, God working evil for good. Uh, but that doesn't make the evil any less evil. So how does your story, brothers and sisters, fit into the redemptive work of God. Uh, we live, we ourselves live, in the same story as Manasseh, the story of God's redemption, the story of God judging sin and bringing all things together in Christ. We live in that same story, and in that story, there will be many different kinds of characters. Uh, there will be the, the good and the evil, the faithful and the cowardly, uh, some serving God and laboring for his kingdom, some serving themselves and recklessly destroying his kingdom. The book of Kings gives us both, uh, both uh, evaluated under the, the, the judgment of God. The very first verses of every chapter, he did what was good, or he did what was good with half his heart, or he did what was evil, or in Manasseh's case, he did more evil than anyone else before him. Uh, so who are you? In God's story? Surely the book of Kings would have us ask that question. You, know, you young people, who will you be in God's story? And the author of Kings uh, are, are brutally honest as, 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 as they write about the legacy that, that Manasseh left behind. Uh, there, there are a couple of things in particular that we, we do want to pay attention to as we look at Manasseh's legacy in particular. Uh, first of all, the damage that Manasseh did was spiritual. Before it was anything else, now, it was other things too. But it was spiritual damage before anything else. Uh, the focus in this chapter is on the idolatry that Manasseh introduced. Even though he did many other things, that becomes the focus of of this chapter. Verses one to nine list at least seven spiritual atrocities that that Manasseh committed. Uh, and we might be surprised uh, then when we come to verse 16, which, which adds almost as a just an add-on uh, that tells us, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other uh, with innocent blood, besides all the other sin that he made Judah to commit. Now, it, if we had to describe Manasseh's legacy, if it was up to us to write the book of Kings, would we have written it with the same emphases that God writes it? Uh, We probably would have begun with all of the terrible human rights abuses, the the shedding of innocent blood. But the Word of God mentions that in just one verse and spends its time devoted to the, the spiritual impact of Manasseh's reign. Now, that's not because God doesn't care about human rights abuses. and when you read the prophets that spoke during his days, it's very clear that they cared a great deal about human rights abuses. Now, uh, perhaps it's not uh, coincidental. You, you find prophets for virtually every age that correspond to every age in kings, except for the age of Manasseh. There, there's no prophets that spoke during his lifetime, meaning that either God was silent during his life, because of the the apostasy, or perhaps even more likely, none of God's prophets or their writings actually ever survived from Manasseh's reign. Uh, ancient tradition has it that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was sawn in two during Manasseh's reign. Uh, so uh, there are no prophets who spoke in in his age or whose writings survive from his age. But we know from the prophets before and after they cared a great deal about human rights abuses. Uh, They were deeply concerned with the plundering of the poor. It's a theme that comes back again and again in in the prophets. The abuse of widows and orphans uh, and many other violations of justice that took place. You read Micah, uh, for example. Uh, Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God cares about human rights abuses. And yet, in the account of a king whose reign was characterized by the shedding of innocent blood uh, that fills the city from one end to another, the attention is nonetheless on the spiritual evils that Manasseh introduced. Uh, Why? Because the damage that he did was spiritual before it was anything else. Uh, The deepest and most fundamental orientation of the human heart is towards questions of worship. Who or what shall we worship? And everything else flows from that question. If if we are not oriented towards the God for whom we are created, every other evil shall follow. Uh, If, as Proverbs says, the, the heart is the wellspring of life, as, as the book of Proverbs says, then we should observe that that the question of who or what we worship stands right there at the heart of the heart, the the very center of the wellspring of our life is the question, who or what will you worship? Uh, and so, spiritual apostasy precedes every other kind of evil. It was, uh, as we think of Adam and Eve, for example, it was the taking of the fruit that God had forbidden in an effort to be like God. It's a question of worship. Uh, To be like God, it's because of that that they plunged the world into the darkness and depravity that we now see in, in this world. That question of false worship corrupted everything else. So also then the book of Kings focuses on these questions of worship. Uh, we, we, we might ourselves then need be in need of, of somewhat of a, a recalibration in, in our moral judgment because we, we, we uh, become uh, revulsed at, at seeing human rights abuses. We're shocked at that and we're often callous or indifferent When we see spiritual evils, things that God declares in His sight are abominable. Human rights abuses begin in the heart with matters of worship. And so we ought to be equally, if not even more shocked and, and dismayed at the spiritual apostasies uh, that are that are told in, in this text. All of the bloodshed and the mass deportation and all the other evils uh, that we read about are symptoms of a profound spiritual idolatry, a heart that's turned away from the God for whom it was created. Uh, so this chapter then uh, directs us Uh, our our focus to the spiritual evils. And it lists at least seven. Uh, He removed the high places that his father Hezekiah had, had, uh, or excuse me, he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had removed. If you remember, Hezekiah was the first king to finally deal with these these high places. Well, his son Manasseh puts them right back where they were. He erected altars for Baal. He set up an Asherah, the, the worship of which typically involved also cult prostitution and other uh, more uh, human rights abuses. Uh, f- number four, he, he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Number five, he built altars in the house of God uh, for these pagan gods. Uh, here the text just takes a, a, a hiatus. It pauses in the middle of all this and, and just spends a few verses talking about this house of God uh, in which he had he had placed his idols. Uh, the text reminds us, this is the house of God in which God himself had said, in Jerusalem, I'm putting my name. Uh, th- that Why is that reminder there? Surely it's to, to underscore the, the sense of horror that we should have When we see someone putting up false gods in the very house of God. The temple was the place of God's salvation. The place where God wanted his name to dwell. And the place from which God was going to further his purpose to save the world. That was the place by which God had centered the hope of humanity. And here then, Manasseh takes these idols and sticks them right in the middle of, of the temple. Uh, we should be shocked at, at that level of idolatry. Uh, number six, he burned his son as an offering to Molech. Uh, and the focus there is not just, like we might be shocked at just the suffering that his son obviously would have gone through. But the focus there is not on that. It's on the idolatry, that he reached that level of idolatry, that he burned his son as an offering to Molech. It's another reminder that spiritual apostasy precedes everything else. Uh, and, and finally, number seven, he used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums—that is, witches and necromancers, which is black magic involving some sort of communication with with the dead. Uh, it's spiritual perversion to the utmost degree. Uh, and verses verses seven through eight really uh, emphasize the, the the historical significance of of this. This chapter—it's hard for us to understand this from our perspective, so many centuries removed, and living here in Alora and not in in Jerusalem. Uh, But verse seven uh, tells us that the carved image of Asher that he had set that he had made, he said in the house of the Lord, which David said, which. Of which the Lord said to David and and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, there I will put my name forever, and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Now, why are all these, these, these details way back from the time of Moses and then the time of David why are those details dragged back into, into this chapter? Well, because it's, it's at this moment in history uh, that, that this truth, that God had placed His name there in, in the temple and from there called His people to follow Him, uh, that was the, the central principle by which God's plans of salvation moved forward. And that is at heart what Manasseh is attacking. He's not just worshipping false gods of any any kind. He's specifically working against the salvation that God had planned for the world. Uh, we have to understand this from the perspective of the church of that day, looking at the temple, the only hope they had that God was going to fulfill His promises, that God was going to save the world. And they're looking at the temple and watching their king of the line of David placing false gods right there in the middle of the temple. Uh, Again, it's hard to imagine from our perspective, but a comparable sort of atrocity in our day would be, if you can imagine a king who manages to wipe out the name of Jesus from Christianity. That's how, how shocking it would have been to see the temple uh, so violated in, in their day. Or, or, or if some, some king was able to eradicate the knowledge of the gospel from the Christian church. Uh, that's what it would have been like for the church of that day to witness the temple so desecrated. It's a spiritual atrocity that, that not only undermined the, the very reason for Judah's existence, because Judah existed to be the nation by which God was going to carry this, this plan of salvation forward. So, so Manasseh undermined the very reason for Judah's existence. But even more, Manasseh crippled the purposes of God, or so it seemed, for the salvation of the world. Well, that's what the text wants us uh, to see by, by focusing on these promises that God had tied to the temple. Uh, so, when we consider the, the awful legacy that Manasseh left behind, uh, we want to recognize that the damage was spiritual, profoundly spiritual, before it was anything else. Uh, Secondly, we want to recognize that the damage that Manasseh did was irreversible. It was irreversible. Uh, We've seen this already. We we talked about this with respect to Manasseh himself and and his own personal legacy, uh, that, that even though he repented at the end of his life, that doesn't change the legacy that he left behind, but we also want to think about the damage that he did to the nation, uh, and how that too uh, would not simply be undone by the next king. Uh, we might, in the first place, think of uh, Manasseh's own son Ammon, uh, who who walked in exactly the text highlights this, who walked in the ways his father had introduced. Uh, who, who did exactly what his father had taught him to do. Uh, so Manasseh had his opportunity to raise his son in the fear of the Lord, and he let that ship sail. Uh, he, he let that opportunity pass him by. Uh, and, and even though by the end of his life he repented, he had no more influence on his son Ammon. That was too late. Uh, what he had a fa- as a father had planted by that point had already taken root in, in his son. And so verse 20 says, Ammon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his, his father had done. There's an irreversible damage that's highlighted in that text. And that really ought to be again a sobering lesson for us. What's written in the present will be sealed in the past. Now, The opportunities that we have now to be the people God calls us to be now uh, the fathers, the mothers, the brothers, the sisters, uh, sons and daughters are opportunities that, that will not last forever in which God calls us to obedience now for our own sake and not only is what's written in the present sealed in the past uh, but but to change metaphors what's sown in the present will be reaped in the future Uh, he who sows the wind will reap the whirlwind Uh, and sometimes that's true even when there's repentance that on this earth we reap what we sow Uh, Manasseh brought the nation of Judah to this point. Uh, Up till now, we've never heard a prophecy of judgment towards Judah like the one that we get in this chapter in verses 10 to 15. Uh, up till now, we're always reminded, no, but God we remembered his promise to David, and God remembered his promise to, to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, that, that he would plant his name among their descendants forever. Uh, we're, we're constantly given that reminder. In this chapter, we're given the first prophecy that Judah is done, that God is done with Judah. Manasseh brought Judah to that point uh, where judgment on Judah was irreversible. Uh, God uses four different graphic images in in verses 10 through 15. Uh, First, he says, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's referring to that... Uh, what we call shuddering with horror. Uh, when you hear something so horrible, you have a physiological reaction to it. You shudder at, at what you've just heard. Uh, God says that will be the reaction of those who hear what's about to happen to Jerusalem. Secondly, he says, I'm going to stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of, of, of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of of Ahab Now what's that uh, these measuring lines and plumb lines were, were used for the building of walls and you'd, you'd uh, hang a weight on a string and, and that would as that weight hung, it would show exactly what's a straight, uh, a straight uh, uh, wall. so you can build the wall according to that line. Uh, and, and the thing about a measuring line or a plumb line is it, it shows no mercy. There's no mercy. It will tell you exactly what's right and will not, will not tolerate any deviance from, from what's right. Uh, that's what, he, what God is saying. Exactly as I did to Ahab. I measured Ahab. I gave Ahab justice. Well, now Judah too is going to get just straight justice with no mercy. Uh, like, like the blind scales of justice, then these, these measuring lines are unfeeling, unmerciful, and they insist on absolute perfection. Uh, so, what God is saying is, I'm going to start judging Ju- Judah the way that I've always been judging Samaria. Uh, though in the past I, I, I bent my line around Judah for the sake of my promise to David, now that line's going to cut straight through them. Thirdly, God says, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down, cleaning it to to the point where every last bit of evil is gone from it. Uh, And finally, he says, I will forsake the remnant of my heritage. What a troubling, troubling judgment it is to hear that from from the mouth of God. I'm going to forsake the remnant of my heritage. The the only reason that that Judah has made it this far has been because of God's faithfulness to his promises to to Abraham to always preserve his heritage, to preserve uh, his people. Well, now God declares Manasseh has broken that covenant to such a degree that it can no longer be repaired and Judah is going to be forsaken just as Israel already was the damage that manasseh did was irreversible it crossed a line that would not be uncrossed Uh, and the judgment that follows is from this point forward a certain thing Uh, god's people are no longer going to be judged by the by their identity as a people of god they're going to be judged by their works and that is a frightening thing to hear Uh, They were going to lose their only refuge, which is the promises of God. We think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And now God's saying, I'm going to start marking iniquities. That's a frightening thing to hear from God. It's a silver reminder for us as well. Uh, The author to the Hebrews uh, tells us something similar in, in Hebrews 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that will consume the adversaries of God. A high-handed opposition to God, a stubborn refusal to repent before God can cause a person to be removed from God's covenant. And out there, outside of God's covenant, we stand on our own. We stand with nothing left to appeal to but our own righteousness. And we already know very well that's not going to fly in the face of God. So again, there's no opportunity for, for repentance like the present. And the need for repentance is, is made all the more urgent by the fact that we don't know where that line is that once crossed puts us beyond the hope, beyond the possibility of repentance. I don't say beyond the possibility of forgiveness Beyond the possibility of repentance, God sometimes withholds his hand and says, I'm no longer going to give the gift of repentance to this person. So repent now, while there's still time, lest we reach that point. One commentator puts it this way, uh, this is a solemn matter, that iniquity can pass a point that places a nation or an individual beyond hope of recovery and makes judgment irreversible. And the fact that we don't know where that point is should sober us. There's a line we can cross, and we don't know where it is. That ought to scare us into repenting. So may each of us, too, then, live with sensitive consciences, able to be convicted by the Word of God, willing to respond today in repentance, and to do so immediately, not putting that off till some later date, because we don't know whether that day will ever come. Now we don't know whether our unrepentant heart might lead us to a place where repentance is no longer possible. Uh, so, the damage that Manasseh did was spiritual before it was anything else. And the damage that Manasseh did was tragically irreversible. Well, our last point that we want to observe is that in spite of all of that, the mercy of God still remains. Uh, to be sure, this judgment was no empty threat. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He did forsake The remnant of is his inheritance. Uh, He did let Judah and Jerusalem be destroyed and taken off into slavery. Uh, Indeed, if if you follow that story in the book of Jeremiah, uh, even after God God removed Jerusalem and and Judah, he left a small remnant of the people in the land to which he was going to show mercy. And that remnant too chose to walk away from God. They they chose to disobey God and flee to Egypt. And God said, I'm going to pursue them there. He forsook the remnant of his inheritance. And yet, nonetheless, even after forsaking them, God remembered them again. That's the marvelous thing. After the divorce, God promises there's still going to be a remarriage. The first covenant may be broken beyond repair, and yet even as I forsake my people, I will remember them again. Uh, to be sure, in the intervening years or even centuries, many generations were lost, and they were lost forever. Uh, truly lost and forsaken. There are, there are Jews in hell right now uh, from those generations who have no hope of salvation uh, they, they perished in exile, they persisted in idolatry to the bitter end, and, lost for, uh, and were lost for eternity in the darkness of hell. Uh, God's faithfulness to his promises does, uh, does not mean that every individual or every generation will be forgiven and, and restored. Uh, and, and yet we have been reminded of God's commitment to the salvation of the world through his people and, and here we can take comfort. We will be reminded of that faithfulness yet again. Uh, one of the most striking passages of Scripture is, is Jeremiah 31, verse 35, uh, who says, uh, where, where God says, Thus says the Lord who gives the, the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I shall cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Which is a way of saying, I will never forever cast them off. I may for a time, but I will always remember them. I will always pursue them again. Though God casts off, God does not forget. Uh, Though many individuals and sometimes many generations are lost, and even though the covenant from a human perspective is irreparably broken, yet God does not forget his inheritance. And he looks forward to the day when he establishes a covenant with them again. Uh, Though we, for our part, so often break God's covenant, and, and sometimes from our perspective Irreparably, yet God is pleased again and again to establish new covenants and to pursue his wayward bride. Uh, Let each each of us then, for our part, be reminded of uh, of the seriousness of forsaking that covenant. His judgments are real and they are eternal. As Paul tells us in, in Romans 11, if God didn't spare the natural branches, that would be Manasseh and his generation or the generation of the Jews of Jesus' day. If God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare us either if we forsake him. But let us also take comfort. Because that same God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and gives us a place for the forgiveness of our sins when we turn to him again. Even as he did for Manasseh, the worst of all sinners, yet he could be forgiven. God forgives through the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we are warned, don't profane that blood. Don't take that grace for granted, but do take great comfort in that blood because that blood was shed for you as a member of God's covenant. If someone like Manasseh can be forgiven, surely every one of us can as well. Uh, we can be forgiven and restored by that same blood. And so looking forward, uh, let us also then soberly consider the legacy that we leave behind as a people of Christ, as a people covered by the blood of Christ. That is who we are. It's who you are, covered by the blood of Christ. What then shall your life be? Will, what will be the legacy that you leave behind as one forgiven, as one covered with his blood? Will it be a legacy marked by gratitude, For the grace of God? Will it be a legacy marked by the power of Christ, indwelt with the Spirit of God, giving your life to the building of the kingdom of God? Or will it be like Manasseh, a legacy of failure, of indifference, of self service, of dedication to your own kingdom and your own will? Brothers and sisters, I pray that for every one of you, and especially you young people who still have your story to be written in front of you, uh, stories that, that, that before long will be, will be, will be completed and unchangeable. Uh, <clears throat> that you right now would consider that you do belong to Christ and that in Christ, with the Spirit of Christ, you can leave a legacy that is honoring and glorifying to God. May that be ours as well. Amen. Let's respond to God's Word by singing from Psalm 112, stanzas 1 through 5.